0: Section twenty nine of the Exemplary Novels of Miguel de Cervantes Saavedra. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Gonzalez. The Exemplary Novels by Miguel de Cervantes Saavedra. Translated by Walter K. Kelly. The Two Damsels, part one, five leagues from the city of Seville, there is a town called Castel Blanco. At one of the many inns belonging to that town, there arrived at nightfall a traveler mounted on a handsome nag of foreign breed. He had no servant with him, and without waiting for any one to hold his stirrup, he threw himself nimbly from the saddle. The host, who was a thrifty, active man, quickly presented himself, but not until the traveller had already seated himself on a bench under the gateway, where the host found him hastily unbuttoning his breast, after which he let his arms drop and fainted. The hostess, who was a good-natured soul, made haste to sprinkle his face with cold water, and presently he revived. Evidently ashamed of having been seen in such a state, he buttoned himself up again, and asked for a room to which he might retire and, if possible, be alone. The hostess said they had only one in the house, and that had two beds, in one of which she must accommodate any other guest that might arrive. The traveller replied that he would pay for both beds, guest or no guest, and taking out a gold crown, he gave it to the hostess, on condition that no one should have the vacant bed. The hostess, well satisfied with such good payment, promised that she would do as he required, though the Dean of Seville himself should arrive that night at her house. She then asked him if he would sup. He declined, and only begged they would take great care of his nag. Then, taking the key of the chamber, and carrying with him a large pair of leathern saddle bags. He went in, locked the door, and even as it afterwards appeared, barricaded it with two chairs. The moment he was gone, the host, the hostess, the hostler, and two neighbors who chanced to be there, held a council together, and all extolled the great comeliness and graceful deportment of the stranger, agreeing that they had never seen any one so handsome. They discussed his age, and came to the conclusion that it was between sixteen and seventeen. They speculated largely as to what might have been the cause of his fainting, but could make no plausible guess at it. The neighbors after a while went home, the host went to look after the nag, and the hostess to prepare supper in case any other guest should arrive. Nor was it long before another entered—not much older than the first, and of no less engaging mien. So that the hostess no sooner saw him than she exclaimed,—'God bless me, how is this? Are angels coming to stop here to-night? Why does the lady hostess say that? said the cavalier. It is not for nothing I say it. Only I must beg your honor not to dismount, for I have no bed to give you. For the two I had have been taken by a cavalier who has paid for both, though he has no need of more than one. But he does that because no one else may enter the room, being, I suppose, fond of solitude, though upon my conscience I can't tell why, for his face and appearance are not such that he need be ashamed of them, or want to hide them, but quite the contrary. Is he so good-looking, Signora Hostess? Good-looking! Aye, the best of good-looking! Here, my man, hold my stirrup, said the cavalier to a muleteer who accompanied him, for though I have to sleep on the floor, I must see a man of whom I hear such high encomiums. And then, dismounting, he called for supper, which was immediately placed before him. Presently an alguazil dropped in, as they commonly do at the inns in small towns, and taking a seat, entered into conversation with the cavalier while he supped. Not forgetting at intervals to swallow three large glasses of wine and the breast and leg of a partridge, which the cavalier gave him. He paid his scot meanwhile by asking news of the capital, of the wars in Flanders, and the decay of the Turk, not forgetting the exploits of the Transylvanian whom God preserve. The cavalier supped and said nothing, not having come from a place which would have supplied him with the means of satisfying these inquiries. By and by, the innkeeper having seen to the nag came in and sat down to make a third in the conversation and to taste his own wine no less copiously than the alguazil and at every gulp he leaned his head back over his left shoulder and praised the wine which he exalted to the clouds though he did not leave much of it there for fear it should get watered from one subject to another the host fell at last upon the praises of the first comer told how he had fainted how he had gone to bed without supper and had locked himself in and spoke of his well-filled saddle-bags the goodness of his nag and the handsome travelling dress he wore all of which made it strange that he travelled without any attendant the cavalier felt his curiosity piqued anew and asked the landlord to contrive that he might sleep in the second bed for which he would give him a gold crown. The landlord's fingers itched to take the money, but he said the thing was impossible, for the door was locked inside, and he durst not wake the sleeper who had paid so well for both the beds. The alguazil, however, got over the difficulty. "'I'll tell you what is to be done,' said he. "'I will knock at the door and say that I am an officer of justice, that I have orders from the senor alcalde to see this cavalier accommodated in this inn.' and that there is no other bed. He must have one of those two. The landlord will cry out against this and say it is not fair, for the second bed is already engaged and paid for, and so he will clear himself of all responsibility, while Your Honour will attain your object." This scheme of the alguazils was unanimously approved, and the cavalier rewarded him for it with four reals. It was carried into effect at once. The first guest was compelled, with manifest reluctance, to open the door. The second entered the room with many apologies for the intrusion, to which the first made no reply, nor did he even show his face, for, instantly hastening back into bed, he turned to the wall and pretended to be asleep. The last comer also went to bed, hoping to have his curiosity satisfied in the morning, when they both got up. The night was one of the long and weary ones of December when the cold and the fatigues of the day should naturally have disposed the two travellers to sleep, but they had not that effect on the first of the pair, who not long after midnight began to sigh and moan as if his heart would break. His lamentations awoke the occupant of the other bed, who distinctly overheard the following soliloquy, though uttered in a faint and tremulous voice, broken by sighs and sobs wretch that I am! Whither is the irresistible force of my destiny hurrying me? What a path is mine! And what issue can I hope for out of the labyrinth in which I am entangled? Oh, my youth and inexperience! Honour disregarded, love ungratefully repaid! Regard for honoured parents and kindred trampled under foot! Woe is me a thousand times to have thus given the reins to my inclinations, O oh, false words which I have too trustingly responded to by deeds! But of whom do I complain? Did I not wilfully betray myself? Did not my own hands wield the knife that cut down my reputation, and destroyed the trust which my parents reposed in my rectitude? O perjured Marco Antonio! Is it possible that your honeyed words concealed so much of the gall of unkindness and disdain? Where art thou, ingrate? Whither hast thou fled, unthankful man? Answer her who calls upon thee. Wait for her who pursues thee. Sustain me, for I droop. Pay me what thou owest me. Succour me, since thou art in so many ways bound to me. Here the sorrowing stranger relapsed into silence, broken only by sobs, the other, who had been listening attentively, inferred from what he had heard, that the speaker was a woman. The curiosity he had before felt was now excited to the highest degree. He was several times on the point of approaching the lady's bed, and he would have done so at last but just then he heard her open the door, call to the landlord, and bid him saddle the nag, for she wanted to go. It was a pretty long time before she could make the landlord hear her, and finally all the answer she could obtain was a recommendation to go to sleep again, for there was more than half the night yet to come, and it was so dark that it would be a very rash thing to venture upon the road. Upon this she said no more but shut the door, and went back to bed, sighing dismally. The other stranger now thought it would be well to address her, and offer her his aid in any way that might be serviceable, as a means of inducing her to say who she was, and relate her piteous story. "'Assuredly, senor gentleman,' said he, "'I should think myself destitute of natural feeling. Nay, that I had a heart of stone and a bosom of brass, If your sighs and the words you have uttered did not move me to sympathy, if the compassion I feel for you and the earnest desire I have conceived to risk my life for your relief, if your misfortunes admit of any, may give me some claim upon your courtesy, I entreat you to manifest it in declaring to me the cause of your grief without reserve. If that grief had not deprived me of understanding, said the person addressed, I ought to have remembered that I was not alone in this room, and have bridled my tongue and suppressed my sighs, but to punish myself for my imprudent forgetfulness, I will do what you ask, for it may be that the pangs it will cost me to relate the bitter story of my misfortunes will end at once my life and my woes. But first you must promise me solemnly that, whatever I may reveal, you will not quit your bed nor come to mine nor ask more of me than I choose to disclose, for if you do, the very moment I hear you move, I will run myself through with my sword, which lies ready to my hand. The cavalier, who would have promised anything to obtain the information he so much desired, vowed that he would not depart a jot from the conditions so courteously imposed. "'On that assurance, then,' said the lady, I will do what I have never done before, and relate to you the history of my life. Hearken, then. You must know, senor, that although I entered this inn, as they have doubtless told you in the dress of a man, I am an unhappy maiden. Or at least I was not eight days ago, and ceased to be so, because I had the folly to believe the delusive words of a perjured man my name is theodosia my birthplace is one of the chief towns of the province of andalusia the name of which i suppress because it does not import you so much to know it as me to conceal it my parents who are noble and wealthy had a son and a daughter the one for their joy and honor the other for the reverse they sent my brother to study at salamanca and me they kept at home where they brought me up with all the scrupulous care becoming their own virtue and nobility, whilst on my part I always rendered them the most cheerful obedience, and punctually conformed to all their wishes, until my unhappy fate set before my eyes the son of a neighbour of ours, wealthier than my parents, and no less noble than they. The first time I saw him, I felt nothing more than the pleasure one feels at making an agreeable acquaintance. And this I might well feel, for his person, air, manners, disposition, and understanding were the admiration of all who knew him. But why dwell on the praises of my enemy, or make so long a preface to the confession of my infatuation and my ruin? Let me say at once that he saw me repeatedly from a window opposite to mine, whence, as it seemed to me... He shot forth his soul towards me from his eyes, whilst mine beheld him with a pleasure very different from that which I had experienced at our first interview, and one which constrained me to believe that everything I read in his face was the pure truth. Seeing each other in this way led to conversation. He declared his passion, and mine responded to it, with no misgivings of his sincerity, for his suit was urged with promises, oaths, tears, sighs, and every accompaniment that could make me believe in the reality of his devoted attachment. Utterly inexperienced as I was, every word of his was a cannon-shot that breached the fortress of my honour. Every tear was a fire in which my virtue was consumed. Every sigh was a rushing wind. That fanned the destructive flame in fine upon his promise to marry me in spite of his parents who had another wife in view for him i forgot all my maidenly reserve and without knowing how put myself into his power having no other witness of my folly than a page belonging to marco antonio for that is the name of the destroyer of my peace who two days afterwards disappeared from the neighborhood without any person not even his parents having the least idea whither he was gone. In what condition I was left, imagine if you can. It is beyond my power to describe it. I tore my hair as if it was to blame for my fault, and punished my face as thinking it the primary occasion of my ruin. I cursed my fate and my own precipitation. I shed an infinity of tears, and was almost choked by them and by my sighs. I complained mutely to heaven, and pondered a thousand expedients, to see if there was any which might afford me help or remedy. And that which I finally resolved on was to dress myself in male apparel, and go in quest of this perfidious Aeneas, this cruel and perjured Bireno, this defrauder of my honest affections and my legitimate and well-founded hopes. Having once formed this resolution, I lost no time in putting it in execution. I put on a travelling suit belonging to my brother, saddled one of my father's horses with my own hand, and left home one very dark night, intending to go to Salamanca, whither it was conjectured that Marco Antonio might have gone, for he too is a student, and an intimate friend of my brother's. I did not omit to take at the same time... A quantity of gold sufficient for all contingencies upon my journey what most distresses me is the thought that my parents will send in pursuit of me and that i shall be discovered by means of my dress and the horse and even had i not this to fear i must dread my brother's resentment for he is in salamanca and should he discover me i need not say how much my life would be in peril even should he listen to my excuses the least scruple of his honour would outweigh them all happen what may my fixed resolve is to seek out my heartless husband who cannot deny that he is my husband without belying the pledge which he left in my possession a diamond ring with this legend marco antonio is the husband of theodosia if i find him I will know from him what he discovered in me that prompted him so soon to leave me and i will make him fulfill his plighted troth or i will prove as prompt to vengeance as i was easy in suffering myself to be aggrieved and will take his life for the noble blood that runs in my veins is not to be insulted with impunity this senor cavalier is the true and sad history you desired to hear and which you will accept as a sufficient apology for the words and sighs that awoke you what i would beseech of you is that though you may not be able to remedy my misfortune at least you may advise me how to escape the dangers that beset me evade being caught and accomplish what i so much desire and need the cavalier said not a syllable in reply, and remained so long silent that Theodotia supposed he was asleep and had not heard a word she had been saying. To satisfy herself of this, she said, Are you asleep, senor? No wonder if you are, for a mournful tale poured into an unimpassioned ear is more likely to induce drowsiness than pity. I am not asleep, replied the cavalier on the contrary i am so thoroughly awake and feel so much for your calamity that i know not if your own anguish exceeds mine for this reason i will not only give you the advice you ask but my personal aid to the utmost of my powers for though the manner in which you have told your tale proves that you are gifted with no ordinary intelligence and therefore that you have been your own betrayer and owe your sorrow to a perverted will rather than to the seductions of marco antonio Nevertheless, I would fain see your excuse in your youth and your inexperience of the wily arts of men. Compose yourself, senora, and sleep if you can during the short remainder of the night. When daylight comes, we will consult together, and see what means may be devised for helping you out of your affliction. Deodolfia thanked him warmly, and tried to keep still for a while, in order that the cavalier might sleep, but he could not close an eye on the contrary he began to toss himself about in the bed and to heave such deep sighs that theodolfia was constrained to ask him what was the matter was he suffering in any way and could she do anything for his relief though you are yourself the cause of my distress senora he replied you are not the person who can relieve it for if you were i should not feel it theodolfia could not understand the drift of this perplexed reply She suspected, however, that he was under the influence of some amorous passion, and even that she herself might be the object of it, for it might well be that the fact of his being alone with one he knew to be a woman, at that dead hour of the night, and in the same bedroom, should have awakened in him some bad thoughts. Alarmed at the idea, she hastily put on her clothes without noise, buckled on her sword and dagger, and sat down on the bed to wait for daylight which did not long delay to appear through the many openings there were in the sides of the room, as usual in inn-chambers. The cavalier on his part had made ready exactly as Theodolfia had done, and he no sooner perceived the first rays of light than he started up from his bed, saying, "'Get up, Senora Theodolfia, and let us be gone, for I will accompany you on your journey.' and never quit your side until i see marco antonio become your lawful husband or until he or i shall be a dead man and so saying he opened the windows and the doors of the room Theodotia had longed for daylight that she might see what manner of man he was with whom she had been conversing all night but when she beheld him she would have been glad that it had never dawned but that her eyes had remained in perpetual darkness for the cavalier who stood before her, was her brother. At sight of him she was stupefied with emotion. Her face was deadly pale, and she could not utter a word. At last, rallying her spirits, she drew her dagger, and, presenting the handle to her brother, fell at his feet, and gasped out, "'Take it, dear senor and brother. Punish the fault I have committed and satisfy your resentment, for my offence deserves no mercy, and I do not desire that my repentance should be accepted as an atonement. The only thing I entreat is that you will deprive me of life, but not of my honour, for though I have placed it in manifest danger by absenting myself from the house of my parents, yet its semblance may be preserved before the world if my death be secret." Her brother regarded her fixedly and although her wantonness excited him to vengeance he could not withstand this affecting appeal with a placable countenance he raised her from the ground and consoled her as well as he could telling her among other things that as he knew of no punishment adequate to the magnitude of her folly, he would suspend the consideration of that matter for the present, and as he thought that fortune had not yet made all remedy impossible, he thought it better to seek one than at once to take vengeance on her for her levity. These words restored Theodofia to life, the color returned to her cheeks, and her despair gave way to revived hope. Don Rafael, that was the brother's name, would speak no more on the subject, but bade her change her name from Theodosia to Teodoro, and decided that they should both proceed at once to Salamanca in quest of Marco Antonio, though he hardly expected to find him there, for as they were intimate friends, they would have met had he been at the University, unless, indeed, Marco Antonio might have shunned him from a consciousness of the wrong he had done him. The new Teodoro acquiesced in everything proposed by her brother, and the innkeeper coming in, they ordered breakfast, intending to depart immediately. Before all was ready, another traveler arrived. This was a gentleman who was known to Don Rafael and Teodoro, and the latter, to avoid being seen by him, remained in the chamber. Don Rafael, having embraced the newcomer, asked him what news he brought his friend replied that he had just come from the port of Santa Maria, where he had left four galleys bound for Naples, and that he had seen Marco Antonio Adorno, the son of Don Leonardo Adorno, on board one of them. This intelligence rejoiced Don Rafael, to whom it appeared that, since he had so unexpectedly learned what it was of such importance for him to know, he might regard this an omen of his future success. He asked his friend who knew his father well, to exchange the hired mule he rode for his father's nag, giving him to understand, not that he was coming from Salamanca, but that he was going thither, and that he was unwilling to take so good an animal on so long a journey. The other obligingly consented, and promised to deliver the nag to its owner. Don Rafael and he breakfasted together, and Teodoro alone, and finally his friend pursued his journey to Cazallo where he had an estate whilst don raphael excused himself from accompanying him by saying that he had to return that day to seville as soon as the friend was gone and the reckoning paid don Rafael and teodoro mounted and bade adieu to the people of the inn leaving them all in admiration of the comeliness of the pair don rafael told his sister what news he had received of marco antonio and that he proposed they should make all haste to reach barcelona for vessels on their way to or fro between italy and spain usually put in at that port and if marco antonio's ship had not yet arrived there they would wait for it and be sure of seeing him his sister said he should do as he thought best for his will was hers don rafael then told the muleteer who accompanied him to have patience for he intended to go to barcelona but would pay him accordingly the muleteer who was one of the merriest fellows of his trade and who knew don rafael's liberality declared that he was willing to go with him to the end of the world don rafael asked his sister what money she had she told him she had not counted it All she knew was that she had put her hand seven or eight times into her father's strong-box, and had taken it out full of gold crowns. From this, Don Rafael calculated that she might have something about five hundred crowns, which, with two hundred of his own, and a gold chain he wore, seemed to him no bad provision for the journey, the more so as he felt confident of meeting Marco Antonio in Barcelona. They pursued their journey rapidly, without incident or impediment, until they arrived within two leagues of a town called Igualada, which is nine leagues from Barcelona. And there they learned that a cavalier who was going as ambassador to Rome was waiting at Barcelona for the galleys, which had not yet arrived. Greatly cheered by this news, they pushed on until they came to the verge of a small wood, from which they saw a man running and looking back over his shoulder with every appearance of terror. What is the matter with you good man said don raphael going up to him what has happened to you that you seem so frightened and run so fast have i not good cause to be frightened and to run fast said the man since i have escaped by a miracle from a gang of robbers in that wood malediction lord save us exclaimed the muleteer robbers at this hour by my halidom they'll leave us as bare as we were born "'Don't make yourself uneasy, brother,' replied the man from the wood, for the robbers have by this time gone away, after leaving more than thirty passengers, stripped to their shirts and tied to trees, with the exception of one only, whom they have left to unbind the rest as soon as they should have passed a little hill they pointed out to him. "'If that be so,' said Calvete, the muleteer, "'we may proceed without fear, for where robbers have made an attack, they do not show themselves again for some days. I say this with confidence, as a man who has been twice in their hands, and knows all their ways. This fact being confirmed by the stranger, Don Rafael resolved to go on. They entered the wood, and had not advanced far, when they came upon the persons who had been robbed, and who were more than forty in number. The man who had been left free had unbound some of them, but his work was not yet complete, and several of them were still tied to the trees. They presented a strange spectacle some of them stripped naked, others dressed in the tattered garments of the robbers, some weeping over their disaster, some laughing at the strange figure the others made in their robbers' costume, one dolorously reciting the list of the things he had lost, another declaring that the loss of a box of Agnus day he was bringing home from Rome afflicted him more than all besides. In short, the whole wood resounded with the moans and lamentations of the despoiled wretches, The brother and sister beheld them with deep compassion, and heartily thanked Heaven for their own narrow escape from so great a peril. But what affected Teodoro more than anything else was the sight of a lad, apparently about fifteen, tied to a tree, with no covering on him but a shirt and a pair of linen drawers, but with a face of such beauty that none could refrain from gazing on it. Teodoro dismounted and unbound him a favour which he acknowledged in very courteous terms, and Teodoro, to make it the greater, begged Calvete to lend the gentle youth his cloak, until he could buy him another at the first town they came to. Calvete complied, and Teodoro threw the cloak over his shoulders, asking him in Don Rafael's presence to what part of the country he belonged, whence he was coming, and whither he was going. The youth replied that he was from Andalusia and he named as his birthplace a town which was but two leagues distant from that of the brother and sister. He said he was on his way from Seville to Italy, to seek his fortune in arms like many another Spaniard, but that he had had the misfortune to fall in with a gang of thieves, who had taken from him a considerable sum of money and clothes, which he could not replace for three hundred crowns. Nevertheless, he intended to pursue his journey, for he had not come of a race which was used to letting the ardor of its zeal evaporate at the first check. The manner in which the youth expressed himself, the fact that he was from their own neighborhood, and above all, the letter of recommendation he carried in his face, inspired the brother and sister with a desire to befriend him as much as they could. After they had distributed some money among some of the rest as seemed in most need of it, especially among monks and priests, of whom there were eight, they made this youth mount Galvete's mule and went on without more delay to igualada there they were informed that the galleys had arrived the day before at barcelona whence they would sail in two days unless the insecurity of the roadstead compelled them to make an earlier departure on account of this news they rose next morning before the sun although they had not slept all night in consequence of a circumstance which had occurred at supper, and which had more surprised and interested the brother and sister than they were themselves aware. As they sat at table, and the youth with them, whom they had taken under their protection, Teodoro fixed her eyes intently on his face, and, scrutinizing his features somewhat curiously, perceived that his ears were bored. From this and from a certain bashfulness that appeared in his looks— She suspected that the supposed youth was a woman, and she longed for supper to be over that she might verify her suspicion. Meanwhile, Don Rafael asked him whose son he was, for he knew all the principal people in the town he had named as his birthplace. The youth said he was the son of Don Enrique de Cardenas. Don Rafael replied that he was well acquainted with Don Enrique, and knew for certain that he had no son but that if he had given that answer because he did not choose to make known his family, it was of no consequence, and he should not be questioned again on that subject. "'It is true,' said the youth, "'that Don Enrique has no children, but his brother Don Sancho has. He has no son either,' replied Don Rafael, "'but an only daughter, who, by the by, they say, is one of the handsomest damsels in Andalucía. But this I know only by report, for though I have been often in her town, I have never seen her it is quite true as you say senor that don sancho has only a daughter but not one so handsome as fame reports and if i said that i was the son of don enrique it was only to give myself some importance in your eyes for in fact i am only the son of don sancho's steward who has been many years in his service and i was born in his house having displeased my father i carried off a good sum of money from him and resolved to go to italy as i have told you and follow the career of arms by which men even of obscure birth have been known to make themselves illustrious theodoro who listened attentively to all this conversation was more and more confirmed in her suspicion both by the manner and the substance of what the youth said after the cloth was removed and while don rafael was preparing for bed she made known to him her surmise and then, with his permission, took the youth aside, and, going out with him upon a balcony which looked on the street, addressed him thus, Don Francisco, for that was the name he had given himself, I would fain have done you so much service that you could not help granting me anything that I should ask of you. But the short time we have known you has not permitted this. Hereafter, perhaps, you may know how far I deserve that you should comply with my desires. But if you do not choose to satisfy that which I am now about to express, I will not the less continue to be your faithful servant. Furthermore, before I prefer my present request, I would impress upon you that, although my age does exceed yours, I have more experience in the world than is usual at my years, and you will admit when I tell you that it has led me to suspect that you are not a man, as your garb imports, but a woman, and one as well-born as your beauty proclaims, and perhaps as unfortunate as your disguise implies, for such transformations are never made willingly or except under the pressure of some painful necessity. If what I suspect is the case, tell me so, and I swear to you on the faith of a cavalier to aid and serve you in every way I can. That you are a woman you cannot make me doubt, for the holes in your ears make that fact very clear. It was thoughtless of you not to close them with a little flesh-coloured wax. Or somebody else as inquisitive as myself and not so fit to be trusted with a secret might discover by means of them what you have so ill concealed believe me you need not hesitate to tell me who you are in full reliance of my inviolable secrecy the youth had listened with great attention to all Theodoro said, and, before answering her a word, he seized her hands, carried them by force to his lips, kissed them with great fervor, and even bedewed them copiously with tears. Theodoro could not help sympathizing with the acute feelings of the youth, and shedding tears also although when she had with difficulty withdrawn her hands from the youth's lips he replied with a deep drawn sigh i will not and cannot deny senora that your suspicion is true i am a woman and the most unfortunate of my sex and since the acts of kindness you have conferred upon me and the offers you make me oblige me to obey all your commands listen and i will tell you who i am if indeed it will not weary you to hear the tale of another's misfortunes May I never know aught else myself, replied Teodoro, if I shall not feel a pleasure in hearing of those misfortunes equal to the pain it will give me to know that they are yours, and that will be such as if they were my own. And again she embraced and encouraged the seeming youth, who, somewhat more tranquillized, continued thus. I have spoken the truth with regard to my native place, but not with regard to my parents for don enrique is not my father but my uncle and his brother don sancho is my father i am that unhappy daughter of his of whom your brother says she is celebrated for her beauty but how mistakenly you now perceive my name is leocadia the occasion of my disguise you shall now hear two leagues from my native town there is another one of the wealthiest and noblest of andalusia where lives a cavalier of quality who derives his origin from the noble and ancient adornos of Genoa. He has a son, who, unless fame exaggerates his praises as it does mine, is one of the most gallant gentlemen one would desire to see. Being so near a neighbour of ours, and being, like my father, strongly addicted to the chase, he often came on a visit of five or six days to our house, the greater part of that time, much of the night even included, being spent by my father and him in the field from these visits of his, fortune, or love, or my own imprudence, took occasion to bring me down to my present state of degradation. Having observed, with more attention than became a modest and well-behaved maiden, the graceful person and manners of our visitor, and taking into consideration his distinguished lineage and the great wealth of his parents, I thought that to obtain him for my husband would be the highest felicity to which my wishes could aspire. With this thought in my head, I began to gaze at him most intently, and also, no doubt, with too little caution, for he perceived it, and the traitor needed no other hint to discover the secret of my bosom and rob me of my peace. But why should I weary you by recapitulating every minute detail of my unfortunate attachment? Let me say at once that he won so far upon me by his ceaseless solicitations, having plighted his faith under the most solemn and, as I thought, the most Christian vows that he could become my husband, that I put myself wholly at his disposal. Nevertheless, not being quite satisfied with his vows alone, and in order that the wind might not bear them away i made him commit them to writing and give them to me in a paper signed with his own hand and drawn up in terms so strong and unequivocal as to remove all my mistrust once in possession of this paper i arranged that he should come to me one night climb the garden wall and enter my chamber where he might securely pluck the fruit destined for him alone the night so longed for by me at last arrived Up to this point Deodoro had listened with rapt attention, especially since she had heard the name of Adorno. But now she could contain herself no longer. "'Well!' she cried, suddenly interrupting the speaker. "'And then what did he do? Did he keep the assignation? Were you happy in his arms? Did he confirm his written pledge anew? Was he content when he had obtained from you what you say was his? Did your father know it? What was the end of this good and wise beginning?' The end was to bring me to what you see, for he never came." Teodoro breathed again at these words, and partly recovered her self-possession, which had been almost destroyed by the frantic influence of jealousy. Even yet, she was not so free from it, but that she trembled inwardly as Leocadia continued her story. Not only did he fail to keep the assignation, but a week after, I learned for certain that he had disappeared from home, and carried off from the house of her parents, persons of distinction in his own neighbourhood, a very beautiful and accomplished young lady named Theodulfia. I was nearly mad with jealousy and mortification. I pictured Theodulfia, to myself in imagination, more beautiful than the sun, more perfect than perfection itself, and, above all, more blissful than I was miserable. I read the written engagement over and over again. It was as binding as any form of words could be, but though my hopes would fain have clung to it as something sacred and inviolable, they all fell to the ground when I remembered in what company Marco Antonio had departed. I beat my face, tore my hair, and cursed my fate. But what was most irksome to me was that I could not practise these self-inflictions at all hours, in consequence of my father's presence. In fine, that I might be free to indulge my woe without impediment, I resolved to quit my home. It would seem that the execution of a bad purpose never fails for want of opportunity. I boldly purloined a suit of clothes belonging to one of my father's pages, and from himself a considerable sum of money. Then, leaving the house by night, I travelled some leagues on foot, and reached a town called Osuna, where I hired a car. Two days afterwards, I entered Seville, where I was quite safe from all pursuit. There I bought other clothes, and a mule, and set out with some cavaliers, who were travelling at all speed to Barcelona, that they might be in time for some galleys that were on their way to Italy. I continued my journey until yesterday, when the robbers took everything from me, and among the rest, that precious thing which sustained my soul and lightened my toils, the written engagement given me by Marco Antonio. I had intended to carry it with me to Italy, find Marco Antonio there, and present it to him as an evidence of his faithlessness and my constancy, and constrain him to fulfil his promise. At the same time I am conscious that he may readily deny the words written on this paper, since he has made naught of the obligations that should have been engraved on his soul. Besides, it is plain that if he is accompanied by the incomparable Theodolphea, he will not deign to look upon the unfortunate Leocadia. But happen what may, I am resolved to die or present myself before the pair, that the sight of me may trouble their joy. This Theodolphea, this enemy of my peace, shall not so cheaply enjoy what is mine. I will seek her out, I will find her and will take her life if I can." "'But how is Theodofia in fault?' said Teodoro. "'If, as is very probably the case, she too has been deluded by Marco Antonio, as you, Signora, have been.' "'How can that be so?' returned Leocalia. "'If he has her with him, being with the man she loves, what question can there be of delusion? They are together, and therefore they are happy, and would be so though they were in the burning deserts of Libya, or the dreary wastes of Scythia. She is blessed in his arms, wherever she is, and therefore she shall pay, for all I shall suffer till I find her." "'It is very likely you are mistaken,' said Teodoro. "'I am very well acquainted with this enemy of yours, as you call her, and I know her prudence and modesty to be such, that she would never venture to quit her father's house and go away with Marco Antonio.' and even had she done so, not knowing you, nor being aware of any claim you had on him, she has not wronged you at all, and where there is no wrong, vengeance is out of place. Tell me not of her modesty, senor, for I was as modest and as virtuous as any maiden in the world, and yet I have done what I have told you. That he has carried her off, there is no doubt. I acknowledge, looking on the matter dispassionately, that she has not wronged me but the pangs of jealousy which she occasions me, make me abhor her. If a sword were thrust through my vitals, should I not naturally strive to pluck it out and break it to pieces?" Well, well, Signora Leocadia, since the passion that sways you makes you speak so wildly, I see it is not fit time to offer you rational advice. I shall therefore content myself with repeating that I am ready and willing to render you every service in my power and I know my brother's generous nature so well that I can boldly make you the same promise on his part. We are going to Italy, and it rests only with yourself to accompany us. One thing only I entreat, that you will allow me to tell my brother what I know of your story, that he may treat you with the attention and respect which is your due. I think you had better continue to wear male attire, and if it is to be procured in this place, I will take care that you shall be suitably equipped to-morrow for the rest trust to time for it is a great provider of remedies even for the most desperate cases leocadia gratefully thanked the generous Teodoro, saying he might tell his brother whatever he thought fit and beseeching him not to forsake her since he saw to what dangers she was exposed if she was known to be a woman here the conversation ended and they retired to rest Leodophia in her brother's room, and Leocadia in another next to it. Don Rafael was still awake, waiting for his sister to know what had passed between her and the suspected woman, and before she lay down, he made her relate the whole to him in detail. Well, sister, he said, when she had finished, if she is the person she declares herself to be, she belongs to the best family in her native place, and is one of the noblest ladies of Andalusia. Her father is well known to ours and the fame of her beauty perfectly Corresponds with the evidence of our own eyes My opinion is that we must proceed with caution Lest she come to speak with Marco Antonio before us for I feel some Uneasiness about that written engagement she speaks of even though she has lost it But be of good cheer sister and go to rest for all will come right at last End of The Two Damsels, Part 1 Recording by Bob Gonzalez, Tampa, Florida